Now, just think about how that relates to Christ. Christ is our city of refuge. We can have, we can be safe in the city of refuge. And when the high priest dies in the city of refuge, all is forgiven. And Jesus is our high priest who has died for us, so all is forgiven. But if we leave the city of refuge, we are judged according to our own works. Welcome to Uncaged Bible Study. We hope our name gives it away as we are looking to unleash God's word in its entirety from beginning to end and unlock the power within the pages of scripture. We aim to restore the authority of God's word in a world that has lost its understanding of doctrinal truths, as well as shed a light on how from the first page to the last page, the Bible is pointing us towards Messiah, our savior, Jesus. So we hope you enjoy the Bible study today. And if you did, follow us or share the podcast to help us spread the word around the globe. And if you leave us a five-star review, that's a great way to let us know that you say amen and are impacted by what you've heard. So thank you for joining us on this journey. And in the words of Charles Spurgeon, the Bible is like a caged lion. It does not need to be defended. It simply needs to be let out of its cage. Let's unlock the cage together. So uh, we will be in chapter 2, starting in verse 12. Last week we just started chapter 2 and really opened up that the book of 2 Samuel really moved from a narrative that consisted of Samuel, Saul, and David and moves to really just David's life. 2 Samuel is basically a biography of David's life. Um, When it comes to who wrote it, we don't really know. The suggestions and traditions are Samuel, which is impossible because Samuel is dead for this portion of David's life. But he may have had a hand in writing portions of 1 Samuel up until his end. Um, Other tradition states that maybe it was Gad or Nathan, prophets who existed during David's lifetime. Um, Nathan is is particularly famous for calling David out on his sin with Bathsheba, which we'll deal with as we move through this book. Uh, But we don't really know who wrote this book, which has caused some question or some issues with scholars previously in terms of did David ever even really exist? Was this just narrative made up um, by people who lived at the time to create some sort of grand history of their people? That had been suggested because there had never been really historical evidence of King David. We'll get to that in a minute, Um, but just hold that in the back of your brain because things changed. And so we'll talk about that tonight. But David has been anointed king by Samuel. Uh, After Saul's death, he is put enshrined as king of Judah by the people who live in the southern part of Israel. Um, But Abner, the uh, captain of the guard of Saul's army, Saul's right-hand man, has sort of taken control in the north through Saul's son, Abner. And so we're going to deal with some of the conflict between the north and the south tonight between Abner uh, and David. 
All right, so picking up in verse 12. Now, Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon, and Joab, the son of Zeroiah, and the servants of David, went out and met them by the pool of Gibeon. So they sat down on one side of the pool and on the other side of the pool. Now this should almost bring back flashbacks because what you have is two armies opposing each other, sitting, staring at each other from opposite sides. This almost is reminiscent of the fight between David and Goliath. The difference here is it's civil war. It's Israel fighting against itself. You have the, the tribes from the north and the, tri- and the tribe of Judah down south, um, one led by David, one led by Abner. And then you have next to David, Joab, the son of Zeroiah. Now, the reason that's important is Zeroiah is David's sister. We don't know who she's married to because she's the only one who's mentioned, but this is David's sister, so this is his, his nephews. This will come into play as we move through the chapter. They're staring at each other. Then Abner said to Joab, interesting, not David, right? Said to Joab, let the young men now arise and compete before us. And Joab said, let them arise. So they arose and went over by the number, 12 from Benjamin, followers of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and 12 of the servants of David. So this is very similar to the Philistine argument of you know, Goliath coming out and challenging David and saying, just have, I will fight one person from your side and that'll decide everything. This is sort of the same thing that's going on, except now there's 12 from each side. So rather than the two armies going at, a, at each other, they have 12 members of the army from each side facing each other, and it's sort of a winner-take-all is what they are claiming. And that's what's happening. Now, each one grasped his opponent by the head, and thrust his sword in his opponent's side. So they fell down together before that place was called the Field of Sharp Swords, which is in Gibeon. So what happened is all 12 from each side, so all 24 soldiers total, grabbed each other by the head and stabbed each other, and they all died at the same time, so no one wins. This is the worst outcome possible. Everyone dies, no one wins, there's no resolution. So what happens? So there, after that, verse 17, so there was a very fierce battle that day. They all attacked each other. This is like the shot heard around the world in the Revolutionary War, right? One thing goes off, and then everyone's attacking each other. There was a fierce battle that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. Now the three sons of Zeruiah were there, Joab, Abishai and Azahel. And Azahel was as fleet of foot as a wild gazelle. So Azahel is basically really fast. That's what they're telling us. This is the Usain Bolt of the time. And he is extremely fast and kind of careless. So Azahel pursued Abner. And in going, he did not turn to the right hand or to the left from following Abner. So he's focused and fast, and he is just chasing Abner down. This is the scene that we're getting. This is one of David's nephews. So Abner looked behind him and said, are you Azahel? And he answered, I am. And so Abner said to him, turn aside to your right hand or to your left and lay hold of one of the young men and take his armor for yourself. 
but Azahel would not turn aside from following him. Let me fill in the gaps. What's going on here? Abner has basically, he's controlling Saul's army. He's controlling the king of the north, basically, um, which is Ishbosheth. And now he's trying to take control. He's trying to gain land. He's trying to gain power. And he has come against servants of David. And this young man happens to be David's nephew. And he's serving David in David's army in the tribe of Judah. And he's chasing down basically the captain of the north, the general of the northern army. Because it would have been considered a huge honor militarily to go after the top-ranking official and take his armor. That would have been like glory of all glories in terms of, in terms of war. And so Abner basically says, instead of trying to take me, why don't you go for a lower-ranking official and take his armor? Also, you look on, you're crazy. You're just running after me. We don't, it doesn't state that uh, Azahel has armor at all. He might not. He might just be chasing Abner down out of youthful ignorance, and Abner is just trying to not take out an unarmed man because he doesn't want that on his conscience, or uh, members of Azahel's family coming after him because he took out Azahel as he was unarmed. So Abner told, said again to Azahel, Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I face your brother of Joab? Now this gives us a little more insight. It is likely that he was unarmed at this point in time, and he's just thinking he's going to get him with sheer will. And Abner's basically saying, how on earth could I look at your brother if I hurt you? If you fight me, if I hurt you, what am I going to do? Because in Israel, there was... In the, the rules of the law, the Levitical law, if you committed murder, because you killed an unarmed man, then rightfully there would be a, uh, an avenger of blood who could chase you down unless you got to a city of refuge. And so he's basically saying, if I kill you because you keep coming after me, how am I supposed to face your brother? What am I supposed to do? However, verse 23, he refused to turn. He refused to turn aside. Therefore, Abner struck him in the stomach with the blunt end of the spear, so that the spear came out his back, and he fell down there and died on the spot. So it was that as many as came to the place where Azahel fell down and died stood still. So that's graphic, but he sticks his spear straight through him, and he kills Azahel because he has no other choice, even though he keeps trying to tell him, don't chase me. Verse 24, Joab and Abishai also pursued Abner. And the sun was going down when they came to the hill of Amma, which is before Gath, by the road to the wilderness of Gibeon. So Azahel's brothers, David's other nephews, are now chasing Abner as well. Now the children of Benjamin gathered together behind Abner and became a unit in their, in their stand on top of the hill. Then Abner called to Joab and said, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that it will be bitter in the latter end? How long will it be then until you tell the people to return from pursuing their brothers? So Joab, brother of Azahel, Joab and Abishai are chasing him down, and Abner basically turns around and says, you're, you're chasing your brothers. We're all sons of Israel. How long are you going to continue to do this? So as Joab said, 
as God lives, unless you had spoken, surely then by the morning all of the people would have given up pursuit of their, bro- of their brothers. So Joab blew a trumpet, and all the people stood still, and did not pursue Israel anymore, nor did they fight anymore. So that calmed the storm for a while. It ended at least that battle. Verse 29, Then Abner and his men went on all that night through the plain, crossed over the Jordan, and went through all Bithron. And they came to Mahanaim. So Joab returned from pursuing Abner, and when he had gathered all the people together, there were missing of David's servants, 19 men, and Azahel. So of all of the soldiers that were fighting in this battle, the 12 that went down in the initial battle, Azahel, and then seven more soldiers had died in this entire battle of David's side. But the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin and Abner's men, 360 men who died. So this is clearly a lopsided battle and victory for the house of David. Then they took up Azahel and buried him in his father's tomb, which was in Bethlehem. And Joab and his men went all night, and they came to Hebron at daybreak. Now, there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. But David grew stronger, and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. And that's sort of how that sums up. Civil war has broken out. Civil war goes on for a while. Um, But I like the way that this is put because it says the house of David grew stronger and the house of Saul grew weaker. And what we know about these two men is that David was a man after God's heart. He was a repentant man who was seeking God's will, who loved God. Even when he screwed up, he would repent and turn back to God. Where Saul was a man of arrogance and gave in to his flesh. So he was a guy who even when he finally came to moments of clarity, would still fall back on he needs his own control and he needs his own power. So as a loose principle from this, you can sort of get, this is like the process of sanctification, right? When you come to Christ, this is the flesh versus the spirit, right? And the house of David grows stronger. The spirit grows stronger as the flesh gets weaker. And that's the goal of sanctification. As we give ourselves over to God, Even though David is not a perfect man, he's a man who makes lots of mistakes. And you'll see a lot of them in 2 Samuel. There's David's victories. It's good, bad, and ugly with David in this book. But he's someone who's repentant and seeks after God. Whereas Saul was someone who was lived by his flesh and was was self-centered and arrogant. So I just like that loose principle there in in the beginning of chapter 3. And then as we move into this next section. Well, let me read it first, and then we'll describe it. So it says, we'll go from verse 2 to verse 5. It says, sons were born to David in Hebron. His first was Amnon by Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess. His second, Chiliab by Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. The third, Absalom, the son of Maacah, the daughter of Telmai, king of Geshur. The fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggith. The fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Abital, and the sixth, Ithrim, by David's wife, Eglah. They were born to David in Hebron. What is going on? So David, as you see, there's six wives that are talked about. He was also, at one point, and we'll deal with this again coming soon, 
uh, was married to Michal, Saul's daughter, and then later on, which we'll deal with in the future, there's Bathsheba. And so David, as we know from the scripture, has at least eight wives. You're like, what is happening? Well, this something we need to keep in mind as we're going through scripture is there is descriptive text and instructive text. Instructive text gives us principles, things that we should learn from. Examples of that are the epistles of Paul, very much tells the audience that he's listening to how to fix the problems that they're dealing with or how to set up churches when he's writing to Timothy or how to understand salvation when he's writing to the Romans and Galatians. That's instructive. This is descriptive. This isn't giving us a principle to live by. It's just telling us what happened. Because the descriptive text that relates to the kings of Israel and marriage comes in Deuteronomy 17. And in Deuteronomy 17, God is pretty clear through Moses that the kings are not supposed to take extra money and horses and wives for themselves. And so David is outside of God's will for the king of Israel. Paul also alludes to what marriage actually is supposed to be. And it's one man and, and a woman right? He goes back to creation to point out what God's design is for marriage. So this is not something that is looked well upon by God. And actually, as we get into David's story and David's life, you're going to see a lot of upheaval that came from this mess. You're going to see half-brothers and sisters getting raped. You're going to see re rebellion some of David's sons trying to take the kingdom from him. Not really. You're going to see issues when Solomon comes along and who's going to sit on the throne because David put himself in a tumultuous situation by not following God's word. This is not something that's condoned because it's in the Bible. It just is honest and it tells us what happened. This is the difference between then and now. Now, Polygamy is looked down upon because we have gotten our values from the scripture. Most of our laws come from scripture and are based in Judeo-Christian tradition. Then the majority of the world was pagan and Israel was the unique one. And so the pagan kings would often create treaties with each other by giving their daughters in marriage to another king to basically say, I won't attack you because I'm invested in your kingdom because now my blood is going to be running through your kingdom. And so David is taking on a worldly practice from the surrounding kings and most of his wives come from deals he's made with foreign lands. And Solomon learns this, by the way. And so we'll be dealing with that as, and it goes a hundredfold with his son. So this isn't something that's good, and it causes, it causes a lot of problems for both David and Solomon, and ultimately Rehoboam. Um, but that's way down the line. So now we would look down on this, but then the world is trying to make Israel fit in to the world, and David submits to that, and he commits to a worldly practice in polygamy to create peace treaties with surrounding nations. And it causes him a lot of trouble. Verse 6. Now it was so, while there was war between the house of Saul 
in the house of David that Abner was strengthening his hold on the house of Saul. So we see these words, the house of Saul and the house of David. Now I want to quickly touch on what we had talked about. There were scholars and, and skeptics trying to negate what the Bible says about historic truth, um, stating David was a made-up character. He's just this sort of fictional, legendary character. We have no historical proof that David ever existed until 1993. Because there was a, an, an archaeologist, his name was Abraham Baran, in 1993 found something called the Tel Dan inscription. And there was a foreign, it's, it's a foreign document, it's not from Israel, writing down a victory that a foreign king had over Israel. And it says that they had victory over the house of David. So it wasn't victory over the northern kingdom, it was victory over the southern kingdom of Judah. And even generations later, foreign kings were referencing David as the one who kick-started the kingdom of Judah. And so that gave historical relevance, significance, and proof to the existence of David. And once again, the Bible wins. It shows us that it is a historically accurate book that we can trust. Verse 7. Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Ayah. So Ishbosheth said to Abner, why have you gone into my father's concubine? So this is what happened. Abner, who is using Ishbosheth to gain power, has taken one of Saul's concubines and slept with her. He's basically trying to usurp the throne and usurp power by putting himself into what the king owns. He's basically trying to set himself up as the one who will take over the northern kingdom and take it away from Ishbosheth. Because he knows Ishbosheth is weak. And he's the military leader. And Ishbosheth is just a figurehead. And so he's, he's trying to usurp the throne from him. So Ishbosheth confronts him about this. And then Abner became very angry at the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head that belongs to Judah? Today I show loyalty to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not delivered you into the hand of David, and you charge me today with a fault concerning this woman? So now he's confronted with it, and he's dealing with it. He's angry. Um, he's called out. And interestingly, his reaction was not to take out Ishbosheth immediately, but he says this, instead of trying to usurp the throne for himself, now he confronts himself with the truth. Verse 9, may God do so to Abner, and more also, if I do not do for David as the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. And he could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. So now Abner's saying, fine, you don't trust me? I'm going to give the kingdom over to David, and there's nothing you can do about it. And Ishbosheth was scared of Abner, so he didn't say anything about it. But I don't know what Abner's thinking, other than maybe he sees that he's losing his authority because the king was willing to call him out. 
So now he's thinking, well, if David's going to be the next king of Israel, maybe I can gain favor with him and at least keep my position. I don't know, but potentially that's it. So verse 12, then Abner sent messengers to his behalf to David saying, whose is the land? Saying also, make your covenant with me and indeed my hand shall be with you to bring all Israel to you. So he actually goes to David and says, I'm going to deliver the northern kingdom to you. So what he's probably noticing is there's something palpable in the air. David was a hero in Israel. Ishbosheth is a failing, weak king, and so Abner is testing the political winds, and he's going, well, if David's going to be taking over, if the people are getting loyal to David, I'm going to see if I can get on his side. And so he actually says, I'm going to bring the, nor the, the northern kingdom to you. And so David said, good. I'll make a covenant with you, but one thing I require of you, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michal, Saul's daughter. When you come to see my face, so David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, give me my wife, Michal, whom I betrothed to myself for a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, from Paltiel, the son of Laish, then her husband went along with her to Bahurim, weeping behind her. So Abner said to him, go return, and he returned. So this is what happened. David is doing two things. He's saying, I, fine, you bring the northern kingdom with you, but here's what you need to do. You need to bring Michal back to me. Michal is my rightful wife. I took out 200 Philistines to earn her, not to mention Goliath. And so she's my wife. Let's right this wrong. Saul took her away from me and gave her to another man. That's not okay with me. And he's also, by doing that, giving himself validity to the throne because he will be married to Saul's blood. And so he's giving himself, this is very Shakespearean, right? This is what's happening now, Abner agrees to this, and he, he takes Michal away from her husband, and her husband follows her, crying. And Abner looks back and says, go away, and that's what happens. That's all we learn about this, which is crazy, but those are the details. They're in there for some reason. Uh, verse 17, now Abner had communicated with the elders of Israel. In time past, you were seeking for David to be king over you. Now then... Do it, for the Lord has spoken of David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and the hand of all their enemies. And Abner also spoke in the hearing of Benjamin. Then Abner also went to speak in the hearing of David in Hebron, all that seemed good to Israel and the whole house of Benjamin. So Abner goes out and he goes around the northern kingdom and he says, Hey, you guys wanted David to be your king. You love David. So do it. Make David your king. What are you waiting for? And then he specifically goes to the tribe of Benjamin because that's the tribe Saul was from and there was, deeper, uh, there was a deeper connection with the tribe of Benjamin to Saul than everyone else. And so he's trying to cut those ties and get them to understand that the right thing to do is to make David king. And after this, he goes back to Hebron to talk to David. So Abner and 20 men with him came to David at Hebron, and David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. Then Abner said to David, 
I will arise and gather all Israel to my Lord the King, that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. So David's cut this, or Abner's cut this deal. He's spoken to the tribes of Israel, and now he's, he's going to deliver on this deal. And what does he say? He says, I will arise and go. I will. He's already talked to them, but he leaves Hebron. One thing to remember as we finish up this chapter, Hebron was a city of refuge. And we talked about the cities of refuge in our study in Joshua and how they represented Christ. And one of the things about cities of refuge is if there is an avenger of blood coming after you, they're not allowed to kill you in the city until you have a trial. Abner leaves. Verse 22. At that moment, the servants of David and Joab came from a raid and brought much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David in Hebron, for he had sent him away and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the troops that were with him had come, they told Joab, saying, Abner the son of Ner came to the king, and he sent him away, and he has gone in peace. So Joab wasn't there when this conversation happened. Remember, Joab is David's nephew and the brother of Azahel, whom uh, Abner killed. And now he's being filled in that Abner was here, and he's left. Then Joab came to the king and said, What have you done? Look, Abner came to you. Why is it that you sent him away and he has already gone? Surely you realize that Abner the son of Ner came to deceive you, to know you're going out and you're coming in, and to know all that you are doing. And so Joab is basically, he's, he's out for blood, he's out for revenge, and he's basically saying, no, I don't trust him because I just hate Abner. Everything about Abner is clearly corrupt and wrong, um, and you sent him away, what are you doing? So Joab, verse 29 when Joab had gone from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner who brought him back to the well of Sirah. But David did not know it. So Joab goes behind David's back and sends out a messenger to get Abner to turn around. Now when Abner had returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside in the gate to speak with him privately and there stabbed him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Azahel, his brother. Afterward, when David heard it, he said, My kingdom and I are guiltless before the Lord forever of the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. Let it rest on the head of Joab and all his father's house, and let there never fail to be in the house of Joab one who has a discharge or is a leper, or leans on a staff or falls by the sword, or who lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had killed their brother Azahel in Gibeon in the battle. So Joab commits murder. He kills Abner when he lures him back and he's not under the protection of David because Joab goes behind David's back. So this is what David's response is. David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, tear your clothes, gird yourself with sackcloth and mourn for Abner. And King David followed the coffin. Are you, this should maybe give you some deja vu or a bit of a flashback. One of David's enemies was again killed in battle. Someone who had opposed him, and David mourns for him in front of all of Israel. 
This is similar to Saul, except that Abner was actually going to do the right thing, probably selfishly, but was working on doing the right thing. But this is David's response to his enemies. He mourns for them. I think that that's important, just to understand how we should treat people who oppose us. We should mourn. We should feel soft-hearted for them and want to help. And that's David's heart. Verse 32, so they buried Abner in Hebron, and the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner, and all the people wept. And the king sang a lament over Abner and said, should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, nor your feet put into fetters, as a man falls before the wicked, so you fell. Now that's what David says about Abner in his grief. And he's describing something really interesting. He's saying, you died like a fool, even though you weren't under arrest. You never got your trial. Why? Because you left the city of refuge. The deal had already been made. But you left the city of refuge. You left the protection. Now just think about how that relates to Christ. Christ is our city of refuge. We can have, we can be safe in the city of refuge. And when the high priest dies in the city of refuge, all is forgiven. And Jesus is our high priest who has died for us, so all is forgiven. But if we leave the city of refuge, we are judged according to our own works. Uh, and it will not work out well for us. So I just see that parallel in what David is saying about Abner. Abner left the city of refuge, even though the deal had already been made. He walked away from his protection. This is, then all the people wept over him again. Verse 35, and when all the people came to persuade David to eat food while it was still day, David took an oath saying, God do so to me and more also if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. Now all the people took note of it and it pleased them since whatever the king did pleased all the people. For all the people in all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's intent to kill Abner, the son of Ner. Then the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? Verse 39, And I am weak today. Though anointed king... And these men, the sons of Zeruiah, are too harsh for me. The Lord shall repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. So as David's response is to mourn and to fast on behalf of Abner. And then he says, he says, I am weak today. Even though I've been anointed king, I am still weak. He understands that what he has gone through has weakened his position and what just happened with Abner has weakened his position. He's not yet available to become the king over all of Israel. And he still needs to depend on the sons of Zeruiah, even though they don't deserve it. And he announces that. But what he does through the mourning of Abner is genuine, but also political. Because through his genuine grief and mourning, it puts him in a positive light towards the citizens of Israel. And the good thing about this is that it's, it's genuine. It's not a show for political purposes. It's David's actual heart. 
to love the people who opposed him and mourn for them. So that's how David treats his enemies, and he mourns that he left the city of refuge. I think that that is a good lesson to learn, to mourn those who oppose us who are outside of the city of refuge, who are outside of Christ. Let's invite them in. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for tonight. Thank you for this portion of David's story, for David's successes um, in the positive light. God, there's so much to learn. Help us to discern descriptive from instructive, good principles versus history, and help us to understand your word and your plan better through this study. In Jesus' name, amen.